I'd encourage you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We are going to be reading from verses 2 to 13 this morning. Um, as I thought about the passage this week, um, I thought about what it meant to be uh, a parent. And for the past 15 years, uh, I have been a parent, and I wear a lot of hats as a person, but uh, of all the hats that I wear, uh, probably my favorite hat is being a dad, um, but it's probably also the most difficult hat that I wear as well. And those of you that are parents, you know what that feels like. And part of that's because we know as parents, uh, sometimes we have to do some hard things, sometimes we have to even uh, discipline our children. And uh, we know the, the word in our house or the code in our house is something along the lines of, well, we're going to have a long conversation together later. And when those words are spoken in our house, the kids know that they are, uh, there's lots of implications to that long conversation. Uh, they, of course, dread those conversations, but the truth is, we as parents, we don't like them as well. Like, we don't like them either. It's not fun having to be uh, severe at times with your children, but Sometimes there are moments in parenting that call for that, and both kids grieve that conversation, but parents often grieve those conversations as well. So I thought about that as I thought about our passage this morning, because I think that's a bit of what's going on here. Paul loved, he desperately loved uh, this church in the city of Corinth, but there were some really big issues that existed in this church, and that involved some pretty severe correction from the Apostle Paul. Nobody was really happy about it, but it had to happen. And our passage talks about that a little bit this morning. So again, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm going to be reading from verses 2 to 13. Verse 2, make room in your hearts for us, for we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together, and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I, have, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves with indignation, What fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, 
we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word this morning. Thanks for your presence with us, Lord, that, that when your people gather together, you are uniquely with us. So I pray that as we look at your word now, that you would shape our hearts, make us more and more into your image, Lord. Uh, but more than anything, fill us with joy at the salvation that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Now, there's a lot that's going on in our passage this morning, um, and there's a lot of things that we could unpack if we had all the time to do so. But the thing that I want us to look at this morning is a very helpful comparison that I think Paul is making here by something he calls godly grief and worldly grief. He helps us to see the difference between those two things. And really, when you think about it, they are uh, responses to grief or to feeling uh, grieved. Now, when Paul talks about this, this isn't grief that's related to the death of someone or uh, some sadness that life presents to us. Life is full of those kinds of grief. But this is the grief that comes from the sins and the missteps that we often find ourselves in. Uh, This is the grief that comes when we realized that we have harmed others by maybe the things that we've said or the things that we have done. And so we might call them uh, grief, but they are grief that are related to another G word, and that G word is guilt, grief related to guilt. And so I want us to think about guilt for a minute because probably the truth is that we all uh, carry with us feelings of guilt wherever we go. We can think uh, in our history of things that we have done, things that we've said, maybe some people that we've harmed through our words or through our actions. And as we look back on those moments, we would really give anything to go back and change them. Wish we could hop in a time machine and go back and not say the thing that we said or not do the thing that we did. And so if we all carry around that grief that's related to guilt, the sort of big question becomes, what are we supposed to do with this grief that's related to guilt? What are we supposed to do with the burden of guilt that all of us carry? One of the things Paul talks about is there's a really godly way of dealing with this, and there's a worldly or an of-this-world way of dealing with with this kind of grief. Paul says that the worldly way leads to death, verse 10. Uh, It's regret without any sort of change. But Paul says the godly way or the way of God in terms of dealing with this grief leads to life and salvation, verse 10. It moves us from a state of mourning to a state of zeal, verse 7. It moves from grief to repentance, verse 9. It's temporary, meaning that it can truly be dealt with. Verse 8, and then if you look closely at the passage, this godly grief brings all sorts of good things. It brings comfort, it brings joy, it brings earnestness. Paul says this a couple times in the passage, and finally, it brings refreshment, not just to us, but to those who are around us as well. Now, in order to flesh this comparison out, what Paul does here is he uses his own story with the Corinthian church in order to teach the difference between godly grief and worldly grief, and in order to show us what to do with our guilt and what true repentance really is all about. 
Now, if you've been with us as we've looked at this note, or at this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, we've seen that Paul's dealing with a lot of issues here in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. This was an incredibly messy church in all sorts of different ways. But one of the particular issues that Paul was dealing with was very personal to him. It struck him to his heart because it was so personal. And, and this occasion was that Paul had planted the church in Corinth, and then he left that city to go to other cities in the Mediterranean world to plant churches there as well. And after he left, other leaders came into the church, and they entered into this small, beautiful congregation, spreading all sorts of kind of nasty things. They were discrediting Paul's leadership, and they were teaching a different gospel to the Corinthian church. And many of these young Christians were led astray by these other leaders. Many aligned themselves with these other leaders that came in. And as a result of that, they started to slander Paul. They started to trash his reputation. They were believing a different gospel. All these things were happening as a result. So this week, I just tried to imagine Paul's heart as he learned how much his heart was grieved as he heard about dear believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, probably people that he had led to Christ, and now they were being led astray in his absence. Imagine how much it would have hurt Paul to hear that the dear people, dear friends of his, were now trashing him, were now slandering him and tearing down his reputation and his leadership. So what does Paul do? He decides he's got to write him a letter. And it's going to be a severe letter as he deals with these issues because he wants to tackle them head on. But don't mistake Paul's motives here. You never get a sense it's out of vengeance or anger or bitterness that Paul writes this difficult letter. Instead, he just sincerely wants them not to be led astray by these other leaders. He doesn't want them to be imprisoned by a belief in a gospel that is false. So even in answering the accusations, Paul's heart is tender and pastoral towards these Christians. Now, I'm sure after Paul sent this letter, I don't know if you've ever written a severe letter like this to someone, but I'm sure after Paul wrote this letter and he sat down, he probably worried about its impact. I imagine him wondering for weeks after weeks, maybe months after months, how the church was going to respond to this intense letter that they had received. I couldn't help but remember the old Seinfeld episode where George uh, Costanza, in a fit of anger and rage, left a nasty voicemail on his girlfriend's uh, answering machine, and then he realized that she was actually out of town and there was a good excuse for everything, so he tries to break into her apartment and erase the voicemail before she gets a chance to, uh, to listen to it. Maybe Paul had those feelings. Maybe he had feelings of regret over the letter. Maybe he wished at points he could sneak in there and take it all back or erase the letter. But we do know, we don't know all those things, but we do know that he did worry about it. And he did worry about its impact. And he says as much here in our letter. But then he says at the end that it all turned to great joy because Titus comes to town and Titus brings Paul a really, really good report as a result of this letter. The Corinthians, Paul, they received your letter. They were grieved by its severity, but then they repented. 
And their repentance has now turned into zeal for you, Paul, and for the work of the gospel in their midst. I can just imagine how Paul would have felt so relieved and so joyful to hear this news from his friend Titus. And so he uses this whole thing as an occasion to talk about the difference between worldly grief and a godly grief. And so worldly grief really refers to the way our world around us deals with things like guilt and with shame and with regret. With regret. And the world has a way of dealing with these things. The ancient Roman uh, playwright Plautus said that nothing is more wretched than the mind of a man conscious of guilt. You've probably been there before. You probably know how miserable it feels when you feel guilty and how wretched it, it sort of weighs on your mind. I think Plautus was right in a lot of ways. And so what do we do with it? Well, we develop all sorts of strategies to try to assuage or relieve our guilt. We might decide to play the victim in this case. Uh, I did this, but really I'm the victim here. You've heard this before. It's um, uh, self-pity that often leads us to all sorts of bitterness. Uh, So maybe we play the victim. Maybe we blame shift when we feel guilty. Well, I only did this because of this. Or I only reacted this way because I'm really tired and stressed from work. Or I only did this because this person first did this to me and I was just responding accordingly. We blame shift. We come up with uh, all sorts of ways to shift that blame. Maybe we make excuses. Maybe we try to console ourselves. We say things like, well, anybody else would have done the same thing if they were in my shoes and in my position. So maybe we make excuses. Maybe we try to work out some sort of penance. Well, I feel really bad for doing this, so let me make it up by doing all of these other things over here. So we have all these strategies, but maybe if none of these strategies work, maybe we just try to run away from it all. We try to hide from the feelings of guilt. We don't want to think about it, and so maybe we choose to numb ourselves through distraction or other means. We just rather stick our head in the sand and not really think about it at all. But the long and short of it is this. None of those things really work at the end of the day. We don't, the, the world doesn't really offer us a way of dealing with our grief, a way of dealing with our guilt and with our shame. We don't really have a way of dealing with it before a holy God whom we've offended. We don't really have a way to assuage or comfort our own conscience. And this grief, this guilt that comes from these things, left untreated leads to death. But Paul says here very plainly in verse 10, worldly grief produces death. I read a quote by a a popular musician uh, out today who said this about guilt. He said, guilt is a cancer. Guilt will confine you. It will torture you. It will destroy you as an artist. It's a black wall. It is a thief. And so not only does guilt burden us, but of course there is no true joy 
in guilt. There's no comfort in guilt. There's no, uh, there's no um, earnestness or zeal in guilt. And guilt left untreated leads to death, both in this life and in the next. But isn't there good news that Paul offers another way? He shows us another way. He shows us a godly grief, a godly way of dealing with it that is different. Verse 10, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And then in verse 13, he sort of indirectly talks about all the byproducts of this godly way of dealing with our guilt. Therefore, we are comforted. Besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So Paul's saying godly grief, it brings comfort, it brings joy, it brings refreshment. It brings all of these things. Now don't miss that godly grief is still grief. It's still grief. That word is still used there. It still uh, confronts guilt it doesn't shy away from it or the effects uh, that, that people deal with because of our sin. And godly grief also not only recognizes how our sin impacts other people, but it also recognizes how it grieves the heart of God. I don't know if you've ever read Psalm 51 before, but Psalm 51 is generally known to be Paul or a Paul, a David's prayer of confession. Uh, after his sin with Bathsheba, his committing adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And then he confesses this beautiful confession before the Lord. And there's a verse in there uh, in Psalm 51, it's verse 4, where Paul's praying to God and he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, if you've ever read that before and, and scratched your head a little bit, I have, and I've thought, well, Paul, against God and God only have you sinned. Pretty sure you sinned against Bathsheba as well. Uh, I'm pretty sure you, you sinned against Uriah as well. I'm pretty sure you sinned against all sorts of people in this process. I've always read and wondered that. But I think what David is confronting here is this. He's, he's confronting how his grief, not, how his sin, his guilt, not only impacts other people, but how it grieves the very heart of God as well just as it grieves other people. And so what David demonstrates for us is that godly grief is willing to do this. Godly grief is willing to sit with our guilt a little bit, maybe a little bit longer. And what do I mean by that? Well, often when we feel guilty, we, we just want to get rid of it. We want to get past it as quickly as we possibly can. And so that's where these strategies of blame shifting and playing the victim making excuses, that's where all those things come from. Or maybe we just act like it didn't happen at all. Whatever it is, we just want to move away from it as fast as we possibly can. But what we see here is that godly grief is willing to sit with guilt a little bit longer. Think about it this way. I can imagine uh, or remember moments in my own marriage where I have said or done something uh, that's hurt my wife. And uh, I usually realize it pretty quickly, and then I, I quickly put, you know, put my tail between my legs and go and apologize for it. And after the apology, I'll, I'll look at my wife and I said, so we're good, right? We're good now. Everything's good. And if she responds, well, no, we're, we're not good right now, I would have told well, why aren't we good? I apologized, right? 
we have to be good with this now. What am I doing when I do that? Well, I'm unburdening myself, and I'm trying to leave her with all the hurt and the consequences. In the process, I'm harming her more by refusing to sit with my grief and truly reflect on its consequences. I've told you this story before, but I remember years ago, I did an exercise with Sonship that was really eye-opening. And what that exercise challenges you to do is this. It challenges you the next time uh, someone confronts you about something, resist the urge to defend yourself or to blame shift or to find excuses, and instead ask that person clarifying questions about what they're confronting you about, and then just listen. Then just listen. So that was the challenge, and I thought, well, it's going to be a while before somebody confronts me, but no. Just that next day or so, the challenge presented itself, and I think it was my wife had confronted me about something, and so I resisted the urge to defend myself or to blame shift or to come up with all sorts of excuses, and instead I asked clarifying questions and decided I was going to listen, and guess what I discovered? She had a lot more to say than I originally realized, right? What was I doing there? I was realizing that my sin was a lot deep. I allowed myself to sit with the guilt and realize that my sin was a lot bigger and deeper than I originally confronted. Friends, this is what godly grief does. It's willing to sit with our sin a little bit longer, to explore its implications, to see how deep our sin really goes. So godly grief is willing to do that, but we don't stay there. That's the good news. We don't stay there because godly grief is willing to sit with sin But godly grief also knows what to do with our sin. Godly grief takes our sin to God, the only true source of forgiveness. Friends, this is really what the gospel is all about. Principally, it's about being open and honest about our own guilt and sinfulness. It's about coming to terms with it. Uh, it, It's about not sugarcoating it. Or making excuses. Instead, it's willing to sit with the consequences of our sin and our grief and our guilt, but then it takes all those things and brings them before our Father. And when we do, we experience forgiveness, comfort, joy, and refreshment as we cling to our God in faith. When you think about it, this sort of forgiveness makes our guilt temporary. It makes it temporary. Whereas worldly guilt is permanent because there's no way of truly dealing with it, forgiveness that we get from the Father makes this grief temporary. Worldly grief, forever. It has no place to go with our guilt, and that's why it leads to death. But only forgiveness and faith can truly dispel our guilt. May not just take away all the consequences may not take all the realities away of the things that we've done, but our guilt and our condemnation before a holy God is paid for and taken care of by the blood of our Savior. Friends, this is what the Bible calls repentance. And really, repentance is what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ, but it's also the entire life of faith. It's every step in following Jesus, repentance and faith. 
Martin Luther knew this when he uh, did those 95 theses and nailed them on the door of the, the church at Wittenberg. Do you remember what that first thesis was? It was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. The entire life of believers is repentance and faith in God. Maybe you've been sitting here for a long time and you've wondered why on earth every week we do a confession of sin and an assurance of grace. Why every week do we own up to our sin and are assured of God's grace? It's because we are practicing what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Eugene Peterson said, only when I recognize and confess my sin am I in a position to recognize and respond to God who saves me from my sin. If I'm ignorant of or indifferent to my sin, I'm ignorant of or indifferent to the great and central good news of the gospel, and that is that Jesus saves. So think about it this way. When was the last time you were truly blown away by God's grace? When was the last time you were truly blown away by it? I asked myself this question, and I thought, more often my feelings are sort of lukewarm or half-hearted. It's been a while since I've blown, been blown away by God's grace. And when we're not blown away by it, it feels cheap. It feels unimpressive. So how do we stand in amazement? Well, we do that by coming to terms with our sin, by owning the depth of our sin. If we never come to, term, ter, come to terms with our sin, then God's grace will always feel cheap and unimpressive, and we will remain trapped in our sins for all of eternity. But when we do, when we come to terms with the depth of our sin, when we rehearse the gospel each week, we are actually rehearsing what it means to follow Jesus with our lives. I don't know if you know this about Martin Luther, but before he did those 95 theses, he was uh, a follower of Christ. He was a priest, uh, but he had a very, very sensitive conscience. I don't know if you know folks that are like this. He would become aware of a sin that he'd committed, and he'd have to do everything he could to get to the church and confess his sins to the priest. And so he was known for sitting in the confessional for hours on end, confessing his sins to the priest. And then as soon as he left the confessional, he would have a sinful thought on the way out and would literally turn himself around and walk right back into the confessional to reconfess his sins before the priest. I've always felt bad for his confessor, whoever that was. And so he was tortured by this. He, was, he had no joy. He had no earnestness. He had nowhere to go with his guilt and with his grief. And then God powerfully showed him what true grace was all about. And he says immediately the burdens that he had lived under for years were lifted from his shoulders and his heart was no longer tortured. So the question becomes this, friends, how do you grieve? Do you grieve according to the world or do you grieve according to the gospel? What do you do with your guilt? Because God calls us to own up to it, to take it to Jesus, to cling to him in faith. And when we do, we experience joy, comfort, refreshment, and life eternal. Isn't that wonderful news? Let's pray.